Hey, this is Dave Pryor for The Reluctant Agilist, and I am here with J.J. Sutherland, who is a very busy man. J.J., thank you for taking time out of your evening. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> so we're here to talk about a very specific thing. Before we do that, can you, for the folks that may be familiar with your last name but not familiar with you, could you tell them about your, your regular day job? Okay, so I'm the CEO of Scrum Inc., which is uh, the company founded by my father, Jeff Sutherland, who uh, uh, invented Scrum uh, back in the 90s. Um, before that, I w- worked for NPR. I was a war correspondent. I was Baghdad bureau chief from 2004 to 2011 and covered all sorts of stuff around the world and had fun doing it. Right. Uh, and came into the Agile world uh, around 2009, 2010, and then I was the co-author of Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work and Half the Time. Which hopefully these folks have read. Um, It's a really good book. If you haven't picked it up, it's a really compelling explanation of what Scrum is and how it works. And I'm going to find a link to the other interview we did where you talked about the stuff that you did for NPR, because that that to me is my favorite story of yours. I I think that's really interesting in how you you were able to use that stuff. but we're here to talk about your new book. Scrum yeah, Scrum, field book. The, yeah, the, the Scrum Field Book, uh, a masterclass in accelerating performance, getting results, and defining the future. Okay, <laughs> it just rolls right off the tongue. Um, so what, what is the thing about this book that you think is unique? Like, why should people check this book out? Well, in the five years since the, our first book was published, we have done an incredible amount of work with a huge numbers of companies and, and types of companies. I would say, and what's interesting, I think, to the agile community is uh, most of my business these days is not in software companies. It's outside of software. And the lessons from that, I mean, I, Scrum as a framework applies everywhere. It's, just a, it's a universal framework. But I, wanna, I wanted to share the stories of that to encourage people to be able to do it. I also wanted to make sure... That I mean, there's a lot of Agile out there these days. And I wanted to say, this is how Scrum Inc. thinks about it. This is how we do it. I actually literally, in this book, lay out exactly how Scrum Inc. does an Agile transformation. Okay. Precisely. And I wanted to make sure that people heard that uh, directly. So what about that approach makes it unique from the way other companies do it? Um, I think what... What is unique about Scrum Inc. is that we are really focused on getting the whole company in. We start okay. with the C-suite almost always um, and getting senior leadership bought in. Uh, we have that kind of access, which is fantastic. Um, I think that we also use Scrum at scale uh, in a very particular way. And I think that we are concentrated on delivering value quickly. Because one of the things I do want to communicate from the book is no one does Scrum to do Scrum. And certainly if you speak to senior leadership, they do not want to do Scrum to do Scrum. They want better results and lower risk. And so if Scrum is the way to do that, which I think it is, uh, that's fine. But you have to approach it in a different way. So before you explain the different way, do you think that we've turned the corner on executives thinking we want to do scrum so we can be agile because if we're agile everything's going to be awesome (laughs) um i think we're still at the stage where everyone wants to be agile because they've been told they've heard that agile is the best way to do things um when i press people on what agile means to them they often have 
slightly distorted, you know, understandings of it. But I think we have turned a corner in the past few years from, hey, we need to convince you that Scrum is better. Okay. And to, we've proven Scrum is better. How do we implement it in your company? Okay. So part of that, I'm assuming, is going to involve more than just training teams. Absolutely. I mean, training is enough. You know, everyone needs to be trained so they understand you know, what, what they're doing. But you need to do team launches. You need to work with the teams. You need to you know, get them through a few cycles. You need to figure out, like, what is management's role? in this new structure. What is, you know, leadership's role? How is all these different, how are all the different pieces of an organization going to be impacted by a scrum transformation? And, you know, whether the C-suite turns into a scrum team like they did at Bosch or they're, they need to, or if they just need to know how to lead agile teams, yeah, it's it really ripples through the organization because if you just have a bunch of agile engineers and yet the whole rest of the organization is um, traditional, right? That those agile teams are going to bump up against that traditional organization pretty dramatically. Yeah. So when you when organizations, I was doing a class today, and and one of the things that became very apparent to one of the students who was really struggling with the, with this stuff was that everything there is so tightly coupled and so bound together. And they only know how to think about it one way. She's like, I don't know how we're supposed to do this because we can't just deliver a vertical slice. We have to change the whole universe at the same time. Um, Can you comment a little bit about how you guys approach that and what it does to the structure of the organization, the architecture and everything else? Well, the first thing is um, modularity. Okay. You've got to have different pieces of your product with known stable interfaces. For example, one of the, um, stories I have in the book is about Saab Aerospace and they're building the Gripen fighter, fighter plane with Agile and Scrum and from the fuselage up. And if you, when I talked to them, it was really interesting. They said, listen, the airframe itself is going to fly for 40 years. The technology of everything else is going to change. So we want the whole plane to be made as if it's out of Lego. So, oh, we need a new computer, pop it out, pop it in. We need a new engine, pop it out, pop the new one in. And so the modularity, and the first step in modularity is sort of encapsulating your problems where you put in a known stable interface between the two things. Like in the plane example, for instance, the fuselage team and the cockpit team have a known stable interface of this is how the cockpit is going to connect to the fuselage. Here's what the bolts are going to look like. Here's all this. And that allows the cockpit team to iterate as much as they want on the cockpit part while the fuselage team iterates as much as they want on that, as long as that interface remains the same. Okay. And what happens organizationally is we know from Conway's law that, which is organizations which design systems, uh, design systems that are reflections of the communication structures of their organizations. So if you have a tightly coupled and rigid organization, you're going to have a tightly coupled and rigid product. But what Saab has done is say each set of teams or team of teams on these different modules can shift. So like, for example, like the radar system, listen, Saab is a big company that makes a lot of different things. But at the beginning, when they're developing this novel radar, there are a bunch of radar teams there, but then it's really easy to, float them off and give them new backlog on other projects when you don't need as much of their effort, as many teams as you once did. 
Okay. And so it, it's an incredible way of organizing your organization, organizing your organization of it works uh, <laughs> and um, around what your product is and it's happening anyway. So doing it consciously is better than doing it unconsciously. But when you go in and, and you say, like, I, I started to tell, I started reading the book today, The Sob Story, which is awesome. Um, I started to explain that to the class and I was watching that one woman's face and it was clear that like, that sounds really cool that they did that. But when, when people are in the throes of, yeah, that's like, you know, I live on my couch and I want to run a marathon. The in between, yeah. the getting fit enough to be able to do that, the finding the ways to break the organization apart, especially if it's somebody who's in like a PO class who doesn't have the agency to do that. What advice it's, would you have for somebody like that? Is I would say, what can you do? Okay. What, 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 you know, what stable interface can you, like if you don't, let's say you don't control the whole product, you don't have power within an organization, change the organizational structure. That's fine. That's reality is okay. Who is consuming what your team is delivering? And how do you say, oh, we're going to have a stable interface between these two pieces so that every time we uh, deliver something, it's not custom. It's like custom okay. dev. Like we all know that custom dev, sometimes you need it, but it's a real pain because you can't yeah. replicate it. So you want to say, how do we make it so as long as we deliver to these, like an API, yeah. How do you have an API between your team and the next team? Okay. And so as long as they can establish and maintain that agreement, they can each work on their own and develop their own pieces and just snap them together at the end. Yeah. And, and in software, I mean, you know, you know this, Dave. I mean, object-oriented programming has been around since the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, doing modular programming in software is a lot easier than doing it in a fighter plane. Okay. And so the fighter plan, I think, is also a great example of the fact that this is beyond software. It's used all over the place. Uh, yeah. Where's the weirdest place that you've seen Scrum used? Um, the weirdest place. So I, two that come to mind immediately. One is I'm working with one of the private space companies, and they're building rockets and launching them with Scrum, okay. which is pretty cool. Um, and then the other one is uh, I started working with the special forces in the Navy, uh, Navy SEALs and yeah. especially explosive ordnance disposal. Wow. And so, I mean, these are the guys, they're, they've done stuff. They're using Scrum to go disarm 14,000 tons of chlorine gas in the middle of Syria that ISIS put together. And these Jesus. guys are like four or five people show up. How do you render inert this stuff in the middle of a war zone? They're using Scrum to do it. Wow. That's crazy. I, I'm always blown away whenever I get like SEALs or anybody who's in that kind of a team in the military, when I get them in class, it always surprised me because like, this is exactly what we do already. And I was like, wow, that's, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I wouldn't think of the military as being like that, but it is. I mean, there's so many examples of it. Yeah. Especially in the special forces community. But yeah. um, my, who I write about in the book, my uh, uh, John, commander, John Hase, who did this in explosive ordnance disposal. I w actually went out to dinner with him the other night. He's taken what he learned from uh, his experience working with me. And he's actually training Marines in Scrum and the Marines are way into it. And they're like, this is how we should run our combat centers, not just wow. how we run readiness. When we're fighting, we should run it with Scrum. That's very cool. That is cool. Um, so I know one of the big focuses for you in this book is prioritization. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and, why you think that's such a big deal. And if you have any particular recommendations for ways to prioritize, I'd be curious about that too. 
Sure. So prioritization, because anytime I, I, this happens over and over and over, I go into a company and say, well, what are you actually doing? And they have a hundred projects and five, you know, each person is working on five of those projects and they wonder why they can't commercialize anything, why they can't get anything out the door. Yeah. It's because they've, they've just spread their efforts so thin. And the first thing I do when I engage with leadership is say, we have to prioritize. It's not that we're not going to do all 100 projects, but right now let's focus on the 10 that we can do. And let's focus on getting one all the way to done. Just as a scrum team needs to get to done in a sprint, an organization needs to get to done in terms of a project. And it's really simple how... I mean, it's simple to me and it's easy for me yeah, to say when I'm a consultant. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. One thing. Is you say, okay, how valuable is this to the organization? And, right. you know, or, and if you don't know, you should really figure it out. And how hard is it going to be to do? And you divide value by effort, then you kind of got it. I mean, it's, it becomes very clear. That's a lot easier to say than it is to do. Um, but it's making choices because the companies, I was thinking about this one uh, global uh, R&D group that, you know, basically takes new material science and makes products out of it and manufactures it globally. And when you went in, there was 132 product projects going on. Okay. And they were like, we don't understand why we can't commercialize our R&D. And we said, <laughs> well, we have 132 projects. And we got them down to 10. Then they snuck back in another, another two. Okay. And then we said, okay, well, you have these... 12 projects. What's the backlog? Great. So now we have the backlog. Let's get some product owners. And then we said, before, let's now organize the teams around the backlog. Like, let's just not have your existing teams. Let's, let's form them around. So the skills that are needed are formed around the backlog rather than sort of randomly. And that really worked for them. So these are these are teams focused on each like twelve teams, one on each product. Yeah, uh, one of the four teams on one. There's one of the big projects was four teams, okay. but most of their stuff could be done by one, you know, one to three teams, okay. depending um, uh, on you know the complexity of it. And um, they also because they're doing R, original R and D, um, even a small group of teams would have an independent path to production. Okay. Um, so it was like, you know, one to four teams in, on, around each backlog. When you're talking with an organization that's used to trying to run a hundred projects at once and saying, even if you get them to pare it down to 10, how, how do you have the conversation about let's just as an organization finish one thing? Because they don't, even though there's no studies that show that multitasking is possible or works, everybody still expects to be able to do it. And a lot of these companies feel like, well, 10 projects, that's one, not enough, but two, how could we possibly just do one thing? Right. I, uh, there are a couple of ways. The first question I ask is, how's that working for you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's probably a good start. I used to argue with people, but now I just say, how's it going with that approach? And then the other thing is saying, it's not that we're not going to do those other 120 projects. We're not going to do them right now. Okay. And once we deliver one project really fast, and that's how you convince them. You get one project, you deliver it really quickly with Scrum, and they're like, wow, that was fast. I said, yeah, a bunch of people focusing on one thing get stuff done fast. <laughs> shocking. And, <laughs> shocking. Now let's broaden that out to you know your entire portfolio. But doing one and also you release it into the market, 
and you get feedback and probably, you know, that, you know, <laughs> project number 118, you now realize is irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> because you learn and getting that validated learning from the customer, from the marketplace. That's what, that, I mean, that's what Scrum is about. Whether and you it's build the team a momentum level or the, the excitement of level. delivery too, right? I mean, I imagine they get pretty worked up about that. Yeah. The, everyone loves to get things done. Yeah. It's, yeah, one I mean, of the, it's cool. Like an individual moving a cart or a company releasing a product, I would think. Big yeah. It, it's like everyone loves, I mean, and uh, I was talking to this one engineer at, uh, at, at 3M actually. And he said, the reason I love working here is I get to release something and I, then I can you know, walk into a store and point to my son. Yeah. My stuff is in that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And that's what people, I mean, people get incredible joy from doing valuable work. Well, that's one of the big motivators of human. Yeah. So, so there's something I want to ask you about in the book that, that is a term that I had not run across before. And I'm, and I'm curious if you can kind of talk through what it means to you and, and what you want people to know about, but you talk about the Renaissance enterprise. So Renaissance uh, is, a, is a word that comes from uh, French. It means rebirth. And what I want enterprises to be able to do, if you can approach a problem at the enterprise level, is have the flexibility to be able to do whatever they want to do and to shift very quickly. They can refactor their organization in response to market forces. And they, you know, we talk a lot about embracing change, right? responding to change over following a plan. To really do that as an organization, to be an agile organization, we have to be able to do that, not just on the team level, but at the organizational level. And what Renaissance organizations, and listen, this is a term I, I made up. I have no idea if it's going to cash on. I think it's- I like it. I think it's- no, I like cool. it. You know, but a Renaissance <laughs> organization is one that can do that, that- can react quickly and change quickly just by the way it is that it's not that they have to accommodate change. It's that they embrace that change is the world that we live in. It's always going to be changing. It's not like, oh, we're going to have this period of change and then it's going to be normal again. It's like, no, change is the normal. Therefore, we have to set up an or our organization, our enterprise to embrace change every week, that that's what the world is. And fighting against it is a fool's errand. So I have a question. This actually sparked something for me. Um, I have had conversations with people before in like the past couple of years where one of the questions I've asked is if the organizations need to stop. Maybe it's not really about worrying about agile. It's just worrying about the fact that whatever we are today, we're not going to be tomorrow. And the muscle that they have to develop is the muscle of coping with constant change, um, that everything's gonna keep being different and we have to build ourselves so that that's how we survive, we live that way. Is that, is that kind of what you're talking about? Or is Absolutely, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And, and, and Scrum is perfect for that. You know, the product backlog is infinitely fungible, right? And as long as your teams are stable and you know, together and dedicated and small, you wanna change the backlog? Oh, we have to change something? I'll just change the product backlog. Okay. And the team's like, okay, fine. You know, every week or two, we can change our minds. The product owners, you know, interacting with the market and the customers decide, hey, what we thought was a good idea two weeks ago turns out not to be a good idea. No problem. 
let's just change what we're doing and let's change the backlog that's flowing to these teams. Okay, so but if we're talking about the organizational structure, that's going to be a very different thing, right? I mean, you need some kind of stable framework there, right? <laughs> right. So, so what I what I've seen, I've seen it done a couple of different ways. Okay. Um, so at 3M HIS, the health uh, information systems, their big data health informatics company, what they do is they have these agile teams, uh, and but the Scrum is describing the communication structure not the org's org chart. And those okay. are two very different things because I can show you two companies with exactly the same org chart and they can be really different, right? Yeah. And so what they've decided on the technical side, they have the scrum teams and the scrum masters reporting into uh, up to the CTO, right? Okay. Because there's a manager, a director, each, in each three, every three teams has a manager. And then the product owners report into the business side and they've, and the business side is sort of replicated, you know, traditional titles with, you know, yeah. Product owner, chief product owner, chief, chief product owner, C3PO, you know, whatever. And, but, and <clears throat> it works pretty well. Um, one of the problems they have, I was talking to the head of agile there and she was telling me is that because the product owners come completely from the business side, it's sometimes hard for the teams to educate them about, Hey, we need to do this technical upgrade, yeah. Rather than make a new feature, because technical debt or whatever. So that's one of the things they struggle with. The other way I've seen it done, sort of like I was talking with Saab, is that you have these <clears throat> these um, you know functional areas, you know QA, Dev, uh, yeah. Design, you the want, old silos, you know the old silos. But those go across teams. So the manager is responsible that hey, there's a representative for architecture on every team. They know what it's supposed to be. They know how it's supposed to be implemented. They can do, here's the tooling. You know, they can, you know, do the hiring. They can do the training, discipline if necessary. But they're just looking at the people rather than, and the product owners are saying, this is what we're building. Yeah. And sort of like the managers are to the side instead of deciding what the product is. Okay. So I want to ask you a question about the first example. So that's a common question that I get is, you know, the team's like, well, they don't care about technical debt and it makes our lives miserable and they just want to build shiny new things all the time. But my response, and this is the thing I want to check in with you on is always that if, if the product owner has a technique for prioritization or the organization has a technique for prioritization and the team members are aware of that and understand it, then it would be up to them to be able to explain, this is why the technical debt matters because here's what happens when we put it into the prioritization model. And maybe it's not gonna generate a ton of new revenue, but it's gonna stop a lot of bleeding that we have going on. So there's a natural tension there between a product owner who wants stuff that is gonna drive revenue and a technical team that wants to you know, make sure that the thing is built correctly and built right and that we don't get mired in this technical debt. That's a natural tension. And the technical team needs to be able to educate the product owner on why it's important to deal with it. And the product owner needs to say to the technical team, okay, I now understand why it's important. Here's my thinking on where the value is. Because there are different kinds of value. One is revenue, but there's also de-risking, risk, you know, and gaining knowledge. Yeah. Like de-risking things in case, you know, you're you're, you're doing a credit card processing system that let's make sure it doesn't crash on Black Friday. Yeah. Right? And so that is, has, is value as well. And a good product owner has to balance those things. 
So you just mentioned the tension, and I want to ask you a quick question about that. I see lots of organizations where the kind of hangover of throwing it over the wall and blaming stuff from one side to the other, that finds its way of persisting into a team in that it's all about, you know, what I'm allowed to do, what you're allowed to do, and these are the boundaries and the lines we don't cross. Have you seen organizations that have found a way to kind of celebrate that tension and amp it up in a positive way? I have. Um, the, the product owner and the team, and it's part of it is just education. Okay. Where, and, and, you know, and my father says there is a designed intention between the product owner and the scrum master. It's supposed to be there. Okay. Because Good. that is a healthy push. Like the, the scrum master wants to protect the team, make sure they're healthy and have a sustainable pace. And the product owner wants more stuff, right? Yeah. And there should be tension there because sometimes you really got to push back on the product owner. Sometimes the product owner is going to say, we got to get this stuff out the door, right? Christmas is coming up. If we don't get it out of the door. We have no revenue. And so that balancing act is part of what makes scrum great because we we want both things and one thing or the other should win at different times. Yeah. And the, I'd say that the most important thing that I see is make sure that the product owners and the scrum masters have a different reporting structure. Okay. Because I have seen it where they make the product owners, the manager of the teams. That always is horrible. Yeah. That's always horrible. <laughs> I was, I always, my help, my bit is always like, you don't have to stay here and work all weekend and finish the product, but I'll be here doing salary reviews. So if you want to come in, that's up to you. <laughs> yeah. How's your bonus looking? Ah, yeah. So the tension thing I think is a really interesting thing because if you think about music or writing or film, like the tension is always what makes the thing work. And I feel like a lot of times at, at our jobs, people want to try to avoid tension and remove tension. But if you don't have tension, you get no rock and roll. Absolutely. Uh, you as a musician know that really well. Yeah. And you know, I mean, as a writer, you got to have conflict. Yeah. Um, but in an organization, you have to figure out a way, how do we make that tension and that conflict safe that people feel comfortable? Because there should be arguments at times. Yeah. There should be, you know, disagreements. There should, but if you, you know, if, if you have an organization that has the scrum values, especially the one of respect, you can have those without fearing, oh, wow, you know, I disagreed about the process or I disagreed about what um, our direction should be in terms of the product. And hey, eventually the product owner said, I hear you. I disagree. This is the way we're going. It's like, okay, fine. Uh, yeah, and, maybe uh, next time it'll be different. Yeah. And maybe next time it'll be different. I mean, I think you know, at Scrum Inc., I always say to my product owner team, I say, listen, I want everyone to fight over things. But when a decision is made, whether you agree with that decision or not, everyone gets behind it 100%. Yeah. And, and I think a big part of that is just making people feel like their voice is heard. Yeah. I mean, because everyone's voice should be heard. Yeah. And, and especially if you're in leadership, it is so easy because everyone really does want to agree with you. And everyone will uh, say what they think you want to hear. And coaching your organization to give you real feedback, to give you real pushback can be tricky. You've got to encourage it every single day. Yeah. This is great. So I, I want to ask you one more question and then we can talk about the book, you know, when the book's coming out and so folks can sure. get it and stuff. Um, and this is not something that I had planned. It just came to me while you were talking through stuff. It's a question I got in class this week. 
this, this person asked, what about middle management? I mean, and I see people going in and coaching teams. I see people coaching the C-suite, but mm-hmm. those poor middle managers and the PMO, they're kind of just left to twist. We have to, we, we spend a lot of time with middle management. Okay. Because, um, you know, in, in my opinion, and I write about this in the book, is, you know, middle management can go two ways in terms of an agile transformation. They can become the frozen middle that just resists it and, you know, causes problems and all that kind of stuff that, you know, we hear about and run into. But also we need to recognize that middle management often is the curator of the culture. They protect the institution. I was at one company where, as in a company with a reputation for extremely high quality engineering, right? That's how they built their business. And the middle management was frightened that Agile would decrease quality. And working with them and trying to figure that out, um, we said, oh, you, we can get what you're concerned about. We can deliver even higher quality. And here's how. And here's how you can support it and hold everyone accountable for it. Okay. Um, I think that the other part about middle management is, listen, if, it's, if you're going into a company that's never done agile things, especially an older company, and these people have been taught that if this is how you get promoted, this is how you get a raise, this is how you get you know, the bigger office, is acting like this. Yeah. So one of the things you have to tell senior leadership is you need to reward different behavior. If you keep the rewards the same, the behavior will stay the same. People aren't okay. stupid. They'll look at the bonus system. They'll look at, you know, performance, whatever, you know, who gets promoted. Yeah. And they're like, well, if it stays the same, why in the world would I do anything different? I've worked for years in this model. (laughs) Yeah. And I've been rewarded for it. And you're saying, oh, change because it'll be awesome. It's like, but you don't change the reward structure, which I know is hard. I mean, that could be very difficult. But But everything about this is hard. I mean, I think if you're going into it, you got to just accept this is going to suck for a little while. Yeah. And it takes a while. Yeah. It takes a while. I was, I was talking to 3MHIS, and I write about this in the book. Um, you know, so we you know, started working with them in, tw- in 2015, and, and you know, we're not there anymore because we transformed them. But So I was talking to the head of uh, Agile there, this woman named Tammy Sparrow, and she said, you know, the first couple of years were amazing. You know, we did get twice the work in half the time because yeah. we did all the easy stuff. Yeah. It's now four years in, she said, now we're really hitting the hard stuff. And it's and we want to re-engage with how do we really get at the deep organizational issues? Because I mean, as you know, you know, Dave, you know, speeding up a software team is pretty easy. Yeah. You know, that's you know, that's a solved problem. But Working a major multi-thousand person uh, organization within a massive international conglomerate, that's tricky. Yeah. That has some problems. And I think that it's like that last mile. I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's a hard thing. I had a conversation with Carol McEwen at the Scrum Gathering about, I think it's Saab, isn't it, that does the daily center for the company and mm-hmm. sinks everybody in like 18 yeah. minutes? Yeah, um, well, they do like... They do daily stand-up, then they do scale daily scrum at one level, then another scrum of scrums, then another scrum of scrums. And so basically by 8.30, they start at 7.30. By 8.30, they've sunk about 2,000 people. That's, I mean, layers of scale daily scrums. That's insane. It's amazing, but I would imagine that that last, you know, after you get all those low-hanging fruit, which to the organizations don't seem like low-hanging fruit, but like you said, like 
if you're working in transformation, a lot of these problems have been sorted and there's ways we can guide people through that. But once they get to that point, then that, that last part is going to be the most challenging part. Absolutely. Where they teach their company how to climb the salmon ladder and get on the <laughs> gladiator ninja warrior. Um, Absolutely. So this was really good. And I'm one of the other things that I just want to say thank you for about writing this book is that, um, I'm constantly being asked, like, can you give us a real world example? I'm like, of what? Just of the real world. (laughs) You don't get the specific thing. They just want lots of examples. And I tell all the stories I have, but I'm going to be able to point them at this book and say, look, this book is nothing but real world examples. Um, I mean, and a great advice too, but you've got tons of good stories and you're a really great storyteller and make them very compelling. Thank you. I, mean, you that, that, I get the same question, Dave. That's why I said, okay, I'm going to tell as many stories as I possibly can so I can arm other people. <laughs> yeah, when they ask stories. you just to read the book. <laughs> yeah. So people will be able to get this book on October 1st, right? Yep. Okay. You can pre-order now. Uh, you, it's, uh, you know, it's available on all the big retailers and okay. including independent if you want to go that route. And um, audio as well? And audiobook as well. I, I read the audiobook. Awesome. Well, how long yeah. did that take? I'm curious about that. That took two days that's all yeah it's not well two and a half okay i'd say because you only also you know you can only read for like four or five hours a day yeah before your voice goes um yeah it, it's not that long um it helps to have a really good director okay and, but yeah no, it wasn't that bad i'm always curious about that when i listen to audiobooks I'm like gosh how long did this take you to do it um but i guess that's based on my experience of recording people with lots of speech issues. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, the All best questions. way, you know, reach me on LinkedIn, you okay. know, JJ Sutherland, linkedin.com slash JJ Sutherland. You can reach me on Twitter at JJ Sutherland, or you can just go to our website, uh, scrumming.com and, you know, reach out there. Okay. Uh, someone actually does read all of the, uh, <laughs> the submissions and, and response fairly quickly. All right. And I'm going to include links to all this and to the book in all its various formats in the show notes for the podcast. So congratulations on the book, JJ. And thank you very much for your time tonight. Thanks for inviting me, Dave. And thank you. Mm-hmm.